Will you pray with me? Father, you have given us an incredible privilege through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for us, who was buried and rose again, who triumphed over our greatest enemies of sin, of death, and Satan. And you have given us, Lord, for your forgiveness and your grace and new life. And Lord, today as we open your word, we recognize that we cannot understand our need for that until we recognize the sin in our own lives. It is when we come face to face with the ravages of sin and our brokenness before you that we realize our need to be rescued by you, our Savior. This morning, Lord, I pray as we open your word that you would open our hearts and, Lord, illumine your word that we would understand our need for you. There is even one heart here today that has never trusted you, that has never placed their trust in you as their Lord and Savior. I pray, Lord, that you would do that mighty and miraculous work of opening their minds, lifting the veil of blindness that Satan wants to put over the minds of unbelievers. And let them see you and experience you, Lord Jesus. Your love, your forgiveness, your grace. May we as your people today, Lord, be strengthened in our faith in you. Encouraged by our fellowship with one another. And deepened in our faith as we open your word. Help us to understand it better. That we may know you better and love you more. We pray these things in Jesus' strong name and all of God's people said, amen and amen. Well, I think just about everyone is probably familiar with the classic children's story by Hans Christian Andersen, The Emperor's New Clothes. How many of you are familiar with that story? I think all of us are familiar with that story. It is a great story that is going on two centuries old. The story goes something like this. There was a certain emperor who loved new clothes. So much so that he spent all of his money on new clothing. He never made a, an appearance unless he had something new on. He had a new suit for every hour of the day, as the story goes. While many kings were sitting in council, he was sitting in his wardrobe. So the story goes that one day a couple of clever thieves came along. And they offered the king an offer that he couldn't refuse. They said, King, we can... We can weave together for you a fabric, a cloth of incredible color, intricate patterns that is absolutely brilliant. But the caveat of this new clothing for the king, what made this so amazing, aside from its incredible splendor, was that it was invisible to those who were foolish and incompetent. And so therefore the king thought, this is amazing. If I were to have this new clothing, I would then know who is wise and who is foolish in my kingdom. And so he hired these two vagabonds, and he paid them a great sum of money. And they began to go to work immediately, pretending to weave their special cloth on empty looms. It wasn't long before the wisest advisor of the king was summoned by the king. He wanted to know how his new suit was coming along. And so he sent his wise advisor to check on their progress. 
When the, when the advisor came to the thieves who were working on these looms, he noticed right away there was no cloth. And the looms were empty. And he thought to himself, there's no cloth. These looms are empty. But not wanting to appear foolish or incompetent, he returned back to the king and raved about the beauty of this new cloth that these two thieves were weaving. Sometime later, as the suit was nearing its completion, the king sent another advisor to check on the weaver's progress. And when he saw these two con men were working on empty looms, there was no cloth there. He thought to himself, there's no cloth there. The looms are empty. But not wanting to appear foolish and inept, he returned to the king and he raved about the beauty and the wonder of this new suit that they were making. Well, finally, the story goes, the day came that the king came to show off his new clothes. And everyone lined up on the sides of the streets. They were packed and people were in buildings leaning out the windows to see this new famous clothing that the king had spent so much money to make. As the king paraded down the street, everyone was shocked to see that the king was wearing absolutely nothing. But no one wanted to appear foolish. No one would say a word, lest they appeared inept and incompetent. And all the while, the king continued to stroll proudly down the street, until finally, in a moment's silence, a little child's voice rose above the crowd, exclaiming, The emperor has no clothes! At that very moment, everyone knew the truth, including the emperor. The child's statement, a simple statement, had exposed the embarrassing hypocrisy that everyone had been enduring. Do you know what makes this story so classic and so enduring? Is the profound observation that is timeless, that is universal, that is this, that there is a gullibility, a peer pressure about every one of us that we will give in to a lie, either individually or collectively, knowing it's a glaring lie, but we will not say anything. Why? Because we don't want to appear like we're a fool. Interesting. Hans Christian Andersen's classic story reminds me of what Paul is doing in Romans chapter 3. In the same way this prolific author exposes the weakness of our giving into a lie and don't want, not wanting to appear foolish, so Paul does the same thing exposing the lie of religion. And the religion that he has in mind specifically is the Jewish religion. Now we're not talking about the Jewish religion of the Bible, we're talking about the man-made um, rules and regulations that the Jews tried to add to the Bible, becoming very religious but unspiritual. The Jews had believed that because they were Jews, they were clothed with a special righteousness from God that in fact did not exist. And so they were parading their way through life, arrayed with a mistaken religious confidence and just like the child who exposed the nakedness of the king, so the Apostle Paul strips away the delusion of the religious Jews. But Paul's words hardly stop with the Jews. They expose our false religious confidence as well. I, am, I never cease to be amazed at how many people I will have a conversation with 
that still believe or somehow have embraced this idea that because I go to church or because I do good works or because I've been baptized or because I'm a good person or because I belong to a particular denomination or I've been confirmed or I read my Bible or I pray that somehow God is going to look at me and he's going to smile and he's going to say, welcome into my heaven. There are so many people that are deluded with the idea that if they simply follow a religion, that God will somehow accept them and embrace them. There was once a man that Jesus had a conversation with who was extremely religious. His name was Nicodemus. Nicodemus was probably the most religious person of his day. He fasted probably several times a week. He read God's word. He prayed. He tithed. He belonged to the religious ruling council of the Jews, the the Sanhedrin. And this very religious man, when he had a conversation with Jesus, Jesus said to him, you must be born again. John chapter 3, verse 7. What he was saying to Nicodemus is this, even though you are a prestigious man, known for your religion, even a noted religious teacher, you have got religion down pat. Jesus was saying that all your goodness is not good enough. You must be born again. Paul echoes this same thought in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. God saved us, not because of our righteousness or the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. You see, the goodness of religion is never good enough to merit heaven for you or for me or anyone for that matter. The Bible says the only way we can be saved, the only way we can know heaven is to be born again, to turn from our sin and trust Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Well, I would open with you if you'll in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Now, I know we've been covering this passage for a while and we're coming to the end of it, but this is such a crucial passage that I want us to spend the time to understand what Paul is doing here because what he is doing is so very relevant to where many people are at today, even many people, sadly enough, who are sitting in the pews of many churches across this nation and around the world. It is startling to me as I get to know people that sometimes they come to church Their whole motive, their whole reason for being here is not because they want a relationship with God, but they think somehow by being here, I'm going to merit God's favor. He's going to love me and he's going to accept me and I'm going to go to heaven. But just because you're here today does not make you a Christian. It is not a ticket to heaven. What gets you to heaven is a relationship, a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is trying to expose as he walks through exposing the lie of religion in Romans chapter 3. So I'm going to read through these eight verses, and we're going to cover just the the last few verses, 5 through 8. But for the sake of what Paul is saying, I want to read all eight verses. Paul says in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Then what advantage has the Jew, or what benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect, first of all, that they are entrusted with the oracles of God. What then, if some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? 
May it never be, he says, rather let God be found true, though every man found a liar as it is written. And then he quotes Psalm 51, verse 4, Psalm of David in great repentance. And David says that you may be justified for your words and prevail when you are judged. Paul goes on, but if our our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. He says, may it never be, for otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, as some claim that we say, let us do evil, that good may come. Their condemnation is just. Now, these verses are some of the hardest verses to unpack in our American mindset of what Paul is saying. But what they're essentially doing is that as Paul traveled from synagogue to synagogue in the years of sharing the gospel of grace, he encountered a number of religious objectors. In other words, religion hates grace. Because you see, religion is always about self. It's always about being in control. But grace is about surrender. Grace is about Letting God be in control of our lives. Religion binds us, but grace frees us. You can always tell when you're around a very religious person. You know why? Because they never smile. And their life is filled with regimented works of making sure they do everything just right every day of their life to make sure they please God. They're one of the most difficult people to be unhappy, unfriendly, unhappy to people to be around. Religious people are no fun. And so what Paul wants to do today is to free you from being religious. Now, I'm just going to say this because I think this is true. And I'm not trying to condemn. I'm not trying to make you mad. But I'm going to tell you that some of you are very religious. That you are doing things right now in your walk with God. Though you may be a believer, but there are things you're doing in your life right now that you think, by the sheer fact of doing these things, you're earning God's favor, and that makes you a religious person. And if you don't do those things, you you will not earn God's favor. I want you to know grace frees you from all that. When you have the grace of Christ in your life, you know that you're accepted unconditionally and eternally as God's child, as you are always. I want to free you from your religious bindings today. But let me just kind of walk through these objections that Paul uh, dealt with as he encountered many Jews along the way who were very religious in their belief about God. We looked at two of them so far. And the first one we found in the first couple verses, they said, what advantage then is there being a Jew? In other words, in the earlier chapter, chapter 2, Paul says, that being a Jew does not merit salvation for you, though you thought it did. You thought it clothed you with the righteousness of God that, that doesn't exist, but it's not true. And so the Jew would naturally ask them, what advantage then is there being a Jew? And Paul says, well, it's not about pedigree. You need to understand that religion will not save you. But in fact, religion, or let me back up, being a Jew meant that you were the first in line to receive the very Word of God, the plan of salvation, God gave the message of the Messiah first to the Jews. That makes you incredibly special. It didn't save you, 
But God was the first one to show you the plan of his salvation. The second objection that they had was, what about the faithfulness of God? In other words, it goes something like this. If, if the Jews were unfaithful to God's word, though he gave them his word, then does that mean that God will break his promise to the Jews? And Paul's answer in his line of thinking here is simply to say that no, man's unfaithfulness does not mean that God will break his promise to the Jews to bring his plan of salvation. So let's focus on these last two here this morning. The last two have to do with the righteousness of God and the truthfulness of God. Both of them are in question by these religious objectors. Is God really righteous? The Bible says he is, but is he really? And is God really truthful? The Bible says he is, but is he really? So the third one is this, the objection of God's righteousness. Look at verses 5 and 6. I'm going to unpack these words, and hopefully they'll make sense to us. Paul says, but if our, if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what should we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unjust, is he, or unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be, he says, for otherwise how will God judge the world? You see, the objection that Paul is dealing with here is this. If my sin, my unrighteousness, brings glory to God, then how can God be justified in his anger toward me? Paul is thinking along these lines. If, if God has given us his moral demands, that is the law, and he knew that we could not live up to them to begin with, how does that make his anger justified toward us? If my unrighteousness makes the righteousness of God look good, then doesn't that make God unrighteous? Paul says he's using human logic here as he unfolds this argument. Now, I want you to understand something, that religion is famous for twisting biblical truth by using human logic. There are a lot of people that can quote the Bible to you. They know the Bible really well, inside and out, that are very religious. But if you ask them, what does that verse mean? What is the context of that verse? What is God really saying here? They will twist it inevitably towards some kind of religious response that it has nothing to do with grace, but everything about relying on themselves and their own merit before God. Religion is famous for using God's word, using human logic, but twisting biblical truth. And that's exactly what they're doing here. So Paul says in verse 5, he says, I'm using human logic here. If my unrighteousness before God brings glory to God, then how is God then just to judge me? And Paul says in his response, does this make God unrighteous? And he says in verse 6, may it never be. May genoito, he says. That is the strongest possible way he could say absolutely not. Then he says this, if God were unrighteous, then how could God judge the world? But the fact that God is righteous, he then can judge the world. You see, God didn't give us his standards. Now listen carefully as we unpack this. God did not give his standards, his moral standards of right and wrong, that is the law. He did not give them to us the first time to Charlton Heston on Mount Sinai a long time ago. He did not give them to Moses. God's law had been around long before that. It's written in our hearts. He already said that in Romans chapter 2. The point being is this, is that sometimes we think, that God has given us his law, knowing that we would fail and that his law is somehow arbitrary, that he pulled it from the sky. He pulled it out of a hat. And yet the Bible tells us this, 
that God's moral standards, God's righteousness, represent his perfect, unchanging, eternal character. The Ten Commandments represent the very character of who God is. And the Bible goes on to say this, that you and I are made in the very image of God. We're to reflect that character. So God's standards reveal the way we were made, who, what we should reflect. So God's word, God's standards reflect his perfect, unchanging, eternal character. The Bible says this in Psalm 119, verse 172, For all your commandments are righteous. He says in Psalm 96, verse 13, He will judge the world in righteousness. You see, the Bible says that God is righteous. He's not unrighteous when he condemns us. That's why he can judge the world, because he's a righteous God. But the question for you and for me is this. If God is not unrighteous, knowing that we could not live up to his law, and that we would fail, if he's not unrighteous, then he is righteous, then why does God expose our sin? Why does he do that? I want to share something with you very important that is so important for you to grasp. God exposes our sin in our lives because he loves you too much to leave you as you are. Jesus tells us in John chapter 16, verse 8, that he's going to send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to judge the world in, in sin and in righteousness and judgment. What that means is this, that when God brings conviction into your life, you will be miserable and he will convict you of your sin in your life. Why is God doing that? Not because he wants to leave you in a place of misery, but because he wants you to realize your sin in your life in order to turn to the Savior. That's why he gave the law, was to expose our sin. And he wants to show you what it is that is separating you from God. It is your sin. If God did not bring that conviction, if he did not make you miserable in your life, you'd be on a one-way road to hell, to damnation. And so God is going to bring conviction into your life. If you're not experiencing the conviction of God in your life when you do things wrong and you know they're wrong and you, and you continue to do those things, then you begin to wonder, does God really even love me? Because if God loves you, he's going to bring conviction into your life and you're going to be miserable before he sets you free in his truth. So this morning you may be here and you'll be wondering, why is it I'm so miserable? Why do I feel so guilty? The fact that you're here today is because something is missing in your life and you know it. There is something that is missing and that what is missing is God. And that what you're longing for is God's forgiveness and his grace in your heart. The Bible says this in Psalm 116, verse 5, Gracious is the Lord and righteous. God is both right in everything he does. He's perfect. He's perfect in his judgment. But he's also gracious. Aren't you glad that God doesn't treat you the way your sins deserve? Aren't you glad that God does come into your life and say, Hey, what you're doing is wrong. Convict your heart. Make you feel miserable. Expose your sin. And you go, you know, I don't want this in my life. I need to turn to Christ. And you turn to Christ and you find his grace. You find his forgiveness. Now I want to just touch on a very popular thinking that is very fashionable today. That this is very relevant to. That is this. We live in a culture and a world today. That more and more we're hearing this kind of idea that we don't need God. We don't need the Bible. 
We don't need Christianity. It's old-fashioned. It's archaic. We don't need God's righteous standards. In fact, we would probably be far better off in this world, in this nation, if we didn't have God, if we didn't have the Bible, if we didn't have Christianity. How many of you have heard something like that? We're hearing that more and more and more. What they fail to realize is that God's moral standards are not arbitrary, but they reflect his perfect, unchanging, eternal character. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 says, God, I am the Lord, I do not change. You see, God did not give us his standards after we were created. They were not an afterthought. He gave them, not so that we would fail, but because we had already fallen and we need his grace and forgiveness. You see, when God revealed his righteousness and his, and his character through the law, it was the very first step toward his plan, unfolding his plan of redemption, of his son rescuing us from our sin. You see, the reason that we feel miserable in our sin is because God cares too much about you to leave you as you are. And he's not going to leave you where you're at. Interesting, if you look in the world, uh, look at the media, look at psychologists, look at counselors, every one of them know there is something desperately wrong in the world, don't they? But the interesting thing is that none of them can really agree on what is wrong. And yet the Bible says this, what is wrong in the world is not God, it's not the Bible, it's not Christianity. What is wrong in the world is us. And we are good, aren't we? We are so good at blaming our sin, our problem, our disease, this fatal disease called sin. We're so good at blaming it on other things. There are counselors today that will tell you, you know, the reason you're this way is because that was just the environment that you were raised up in. The reason that you're this way today is because your parents, they just didn't do a very good job, and so it's their fault. The reason you're this way today is because, and they say some kind of an outside source, and they blame it on something else, on some kind of outside influence. But Jesus said this, listen to what he said. He said, from the heart, from inside, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual morality, theft, lying, and slander, these are what defile you. The reason there is sin in our lives is not because of the environment that we live in. It's not our parents' fault. It's not some outside source. Jesus says the problem is our heart. It comes from the inside. And these are what defile us. You see, the reason why religion is so alluring to people is because they know something is wrong inside. And there are a lot of very religious people. Even secularism, although it's anti-God, anti-Bible, anti-Christianity, is a very religious belief system. Why? Because they know there's something wrong. It's very alluring to them. And religion promises to change us, to improve us. And in some ways, religion can. If you need, eat enough sawdust, it's going to leave you feeling full. But it's never going to do you any good. And that's the way religion is. But it is powerless to save us. Only Jesus Christ can save us. So Paul's first argument is, has to do with twisted logic. And it tries to pin the blame on God. That the reason I have sin in my life is because, well, because of God's righteous laws. And therefore, since God holds me accountable for them, and he knew I couldn't keep them, how can God be just then? And Paul says, you don't understand. God's laws have always been and God exposes your sin because he wants you to recognize your need for a Savior. The second 
or the second objection today we look at is that the truthfulness of God. First of all, is the righteousness of God. The second one's going to be very similar to it, but a little different. He goes on to say, but if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as some are slanderously reported as, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation, he says, is just. Now, this is very similar to the other one, but it's just a little different, different shade of color. In other words, religion loves to slice the bologna very thin, but it's still bologna. So, here's the confused logic that Paul is saying here. If I sin, and God forgives me, and I sin more, and God forgives me more, doesn't that mean then that the more I sin, the more it like makes God look good because of his forgiveness? Therefore, God should not be upset with me. God should, in fact, thank me because I'm making him look good in my sin. That's the kind of logic that he's using here. Now, there is only two words for this. Pure lunacy. Those who know they're doing it know they're doing it. And Paul gives a very short answer to this. He says, let their condemnation, uh, their condemnation is just. But let me give you a simplified example of what I mean here of what is happening in Paul's thinking. Now just imagine that you have a husband who is constantly belittling his wife in private and in public. He is constantly putting her down. And his wife, she responds with love and forgiveness every time. And the husband says, you know, by me putting you down, by my condescension of you, it makes you look good. Because you continue to respond with kindness to my demeaning treatment, it shows that what a wonderful person you really are. Yeah, I hear you. And so one day, the wife puts her foot down, and she says, no more. I've had enough. I'm not going to let you treat me like this anymore. And the husband is shocked. He doesn't understand. And he asks her, why is she mad at him? His horrible treatment only showed her how great she was. She shouldn't be upset. Instead, she should thank him for it. Now let me ask you, does that make any sense at all? Not at all. And that's what Paul is saying here, is if my sin makes God look good, and the more I sin, the gooder it makes God look. I know, I heard that. <laughs> Just want to make sure you're listening. That was intentional. If my sin makes God look good, and the more I sin, the better it makes Him look, then how can God be wrong to do that? Now, anyone who has that kind of mentality, Paul says, your thinking is absolutely absurd. It's nutty, and you know it. Your condemnation is just. You cannot debate with stupidity. And there are those people today that do that. That they will argue with tooth and nail. That, hey, my sin makes God look good. They may not express it that way, but that's kind of the idea. And they say, that God should thank me because, man, my sin makes God look really good. And Paul says, you know what? You're stupid. There is no fixing that kind of stupid unless you come to Christ. You see, Paul is saying that's not only absurd, but there's a, a kind of thinking that goes along with that today as well. 
There is this. There are people that you know, that I know, that have lived their lives lying and cheating and stealing, doing all kinds of wrong things. And they've gotten away with it for so long. They've come to the belief that God is not going to hold them accountable. That God's not going to do anything about it. And yet the Bible teaches very clearly the day is coming when God will judge the world in righteousness. And the only way we can avoid that judgment is turning from our sin and trusting Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So the Bible says now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. What people don't realize who live a life of sin thinking that God doesn't notice, God doesn't care, God's not going to do anything about it, what they don't realize is that one day their heart's going to stop beating. And they don't know when that day is going to be. One day God's going to snuff their life out and they don't know when that time's going to be. The Bible says, for it is appointed for man once to die and then to be judged. Judgment is coming. Don't ever live your life thinking somehow because God has not judged me, that God is not going to judge me at all. He's let me get away with all these things. That somehow I'm going to get off scot-free. Judgment is coming. And the only way you can avoid the righteous wrath of God is turning to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's the only way. Now some of you here this morning may not believe the words I'm sharing. But the world is looking for an authority. The world is looking for some answer to this problem inside of my heart. And you're looking everywhere in the world except to Jesus Christ, the very one who made you. The very one who is the great physician. The very one who can save you and rescue you from your sin. The only way you'll ever know is by turning to him in faith. You see, when Jesus Christ came, he came to destroy and conquer the three greatest enemies that you'll ever have in your life. Sin. Death. And Satan. Jesus came to conquer them. And when we place our faith in him, we find a joy, a peace, a forgiveness, a new life that God offers us. And we stop playing the game of religion. You may be here this morning playing that game of religion. God says, stop. Stop. Religion is a man-made effort to please God. You can never do that. Christ did that for you. And all he wants you to do is put your faith in him and turn from your sin and trust him as your Lord and Savior. There's a story that is told, I suspect that it's true, that the famous evangelist from the 19th century, Dwight L. Moody, visited a prison once called The Tombs. After he preached to the inmates, he walked around from cell to cell and he spoke with a number of the men in their cells. He would ask each prisoner this question. What brought you here? And again and again, he'd hear the same replies. I don't deserve to be here. I was framed. I was falsely accused. I didn't receive a fair trial. Not one of them would say they were guilty. Until finally, as he was passing the cell of one of the inmates, he saw a man sobbing, his face buried in his hands. And Moody said, what's wrong, my friend? And the prisoner said, my sins are more than I can bear. Relieved that he finally found one person who was honest about his sin and willing to come to Christ, that one man was set free that day from the shackles 
of sin. The only way you can be set free, the only way I can be set free from religion, from our own sin, is through Jesus Christ. This morning as we take communion, we're reminded of that. This table is the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not the table of a denomination. It is not a table of this local church. This table is the Lord Jesus Christ's table. And today, if you're here and you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've placed your faith in Him alone, this table is yours to come and enjoy communion with Christ. But if there's something in your life today that you know that you haven't dealt with, some unfinished business, then do business with God first. Do not treat His grace as though it were cheap. God gave His only Son so that we could have access to Him. We could know His forgiveness and know His peace. As we begin to think about communion, let me just give you one more thought. Colossians chapter 2, Paul shares with us that something very important was happening from God's perspective and from the world's perspective. There were two entirely different perspectives. In Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, he nailed all of our sins to the cross. That was God's perspective. He was overcoming evil. He was overcoming sin. He was overcoming death. He was conquering the devil. But I want you to pause for a moment and just think about the other perspective. When Jesus was being crucified on the cross, the other perspective was his disciples, were those who had followed Jesus for three and a half years. What they saw and what appeared to them that evil was winning. They saw their Messiah being crucified on the cross. Today, as we look at the world around us, darkness is encroaching. All you have to do is turn on the news if you want disappointment. There's plenty of it there for you. But God wants us to know this. That's your perspective. It looks like evil is winning. But you need to remember the true perspective, the eternal perspective, is that God is victorious and is using the very means of the evil one, the dark ones, as their own seeds of self-destruction. As we see evil and we see darkness encroaching our world, we need to remember that God met that on the cross and he overcame it. And the perspective that he wants us to have is that no matter how evil things get or how difficult things are, God is in control. And therefore we can have hope and we can be confident that he's using all this for his glory. Because you know what? A resurrection is coming. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. And he's going to use all the evil, all the darkness we see today. He's going to use it for good. And he wants you to have that confidence. But you cannot have that confidence. You cannot live consistently in that. Until you first understand this. Your religion is never going to be good enough to make you good enough for God. You must come to Christ first. And that's what this table is about. Christ died on the cross for our sins once for all. When we place our faith in him, we ask forgiveness of our sins. He comes into our life. He forgives us. He does house cleaning. And he lives with us through his Holy Spirit forever. And we become his child. And he begins to change us from the inside out. Because that's where sin is at. And so therefore he cleans the sin out of our lives and he begins to change us into the new people that we are in Christ, children of God. This morning as we prepare to take communion, I would like you to pause just for a moment. And maybe you've had a busy week, a busy month. 
When was the last time you just sat down just quietly, closed your eyes, put your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and said, Lord, I just need to spend time with you. And I'm asking you, will you forgive me? Will you show me what's amiss in my life? Maybe there's something I'm trying to hide, some door that I've put no trespassing on for God. God knows all those rooms. And he wants you to open those doors, confess those sins, get right with him. Because your life is too short to take for granted that you have tomorrow. Christ died for your sins. Today is the day of salvation. So as you prepare to meet with the Lord at his table this morning, will you just quietly come before the Lord? I'm going to give you just some time here. Just you and the Lord. Just forget about everybody around you and do business with God. Maybe you're here today and you've never personally trusted Jesus Christ. Oh, you're a religious person. Okay. But you've never trusted Christ. You've never personally said, Lord Jesus, I want to confess to you that I know all my goodness will never be good enough. That I need you as my Savior who died on the cross for my sins. Will you come into my life right now? Will you be the great physician who will heal me of my sin? That you will remove the sin and give me a new life in you. I'm going to give you a moment to just be quiet with the Lord and then I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray a prayer very similar to what I just said. If you've never trusted Christ, I invite you to pray that with me. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come to you today. Thank you for reminding us that we are worth a son to you. That you willingly gave up your son's life. That we may have eternal life. And Father, I pray right now that you do the work that only you can do that you would move in hearts and minds, that you'd remove that veil of blindness that prevents us from seeing the glory of the gospel of Christ. And let the light of your hope and your joy and your forgiveness shine in. This morning, if you've never trusted Jesus Christ, God is inviting you by his grace to trust His Son, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, for a new life, and to break the shackles of sin in your life. Would you come before Him right now in your heart of hearts and simply say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins, that you broke the power of sin of death and overcame Satan himself. That you were buried and you arose again on the third day, triumphant over sin, over the grave, and over Satan. And I ask you, Lord, would you come into my life right now? I don't understand everything, but I know I need you. And I pray, Lord, that you would change my life from the inside out. I know I'm a sinner. I know I failed. And I ask you to forgive me. Through your cleansing blood on the cross, 
the power to change my life. Lord, I invite you to come into my life now and change me. I thank you, Jesus, and I pray this in your name.